Why don't we turn in our Bibles to the book of Isaiah one more time to chapter 9, at least as far as this section of Scripture is concerned. We've been looking at the titles of the Messiah found in verse 6, but for our reading we will read verse 6 and 7 together. Beginning in verse 6, this is what the Word of the Lord declares. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray one more time together. Father, If there's one thing, O Lord, that we need, if there's one thing that humanity needs, it is the peace of God through Jesus Christ. Peace to still not only the storms in our lives, the storms in our souls, the anxiety, the worry, the concern of our future, but Lord, peace between God and man, and peace among men in a world of conflict, in a world in crisis, in a world of chaos. Oh God, what the world needs is your peace. But Father, we understand there can be no peace without the Prince of Peace. And so, Father, we are grateful today to be in a vital union with your Son, Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, the one in whom peace is found, and the one through whom peace has been established. We pray, Lord, today that peace would reach into the depths of our hearts, that we would know more of his peace, the peace that saved us in the peace that is set before us, that we would experience your peace as we experience the Prince of Peace more and more in our hearts. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, who is the Prince of Peace. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's reflecting on this passage of Scripture, and obviously when you think about peace, as I alluded to in my sermon, you are immediately reminded of the fact that we are surrounded by an absence of peace everywhere. Matter of fact, our culture has become a professional antagonist to the peace of God. We could say our culture has become a proficient heretic when it comes to God's peace. Because our culture, you must understand, has removed everything essential about God. They have removed from us the holiness of God, the truth of God, the wrath of God, 
the law of God, the infinity, the power, and oh yes, the love of God. In a twisted, perverted way, our culture, in the name of love, has perverted the love of God. Matter of fact, they think that the, through the love of God, everything else about God is to be set aside. Because God is so loving, He can't possibly be holy. Because God is so loving, He can't possibly be just. Because God is so loving, He can't possibly be sovereign. That's what I mean by heresy. You can see this everywhere today. In media, social media, television, popular sitcoms, movies, innuendos. When people die, Kobe Bryant just died. People are still reeling about that. When our stars die, athletes, in the midst of our ceremonies, cultural sentiment. You hear the kind of God that they will accept. They'll accept anything but the true God. They will believe in the country music God, social justice God, a political God, democratic God, republican God, conservative God, liberal God. They'll believe in a patriotic God. They'll believe in a black God, a brown God, a white God. But they will not believe in the biblical God of the Bible. He will forever remain intolerable and incompatible with our world and our culture. Because he is, as Isaiah himself has declared him to be, the Holy One of Israel. See, you can talk a lot about God. You can make money on God. You can make movies about God. You can make sentimental, you know, Films about God. You can make cheesy Christian movies about God. But not the holy God of the Bible. That's the God nobody wants. But in order to understand this title before us today in verse 6, the Prince of Peace. When you tell someone in the culture today, I want to talk to you about the Prince of Peace, what they hear is, oh, peace that I can assimilate into my life. Peace that I can just sort of put right into the shuffle of everything else that I'm doing. Who doesn't want a little peace? But like all the other attributes, this peace has a context, does it not? Forget what culture says about the kind of God that is acceptable as far as they're concerned. It simply doesn't matter. Let me remind us today. It doesn't matter what the culture tells us about its relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, it is absolutely inconsequential what the world thinks about God. The only thing that matters about your theology proper, your doctrine of God, is what does Scripture say? The true God has bound Himself to the Word of God. And if we want to learn anything about God, we must go to God for that. That's exactly what culture doesn't want to do. 
Humanity has no ground at this point. It has no basis. It has no right to dictate the terms of their relationship to God. Humanity and its creator are what God says that it is, including whatever relationship God says that he is in with humanity. And what Reformed theology teaches us, based on Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, is that humanity is in a covenant relationship with God. And because we broke the covenant, what we call the covenant of works, we broke that original creational arrangement with Adam and God, and because of that, the whole world has been plunged into covenant breaking. That's, what we sh- that's how we should react. I wrote a whole book on this. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Convert from Adam to Christ. Everybody pronounces it convert. Anyway, it's a verb, not... Anyway. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. You are either in Adam or in Christ. And because man is in Adam, it is crystal clear in Scripture that he is dead in sin. He is depraved. He is incapable of righting his wrongs. He is unable of drawing near to God. He is separated from God. He has no interest in God. He's hostile to God. In his very nature, God says man is a hater of God. Oh, but you wouldn't think so based on all the sentimentality in our culture. The God bless you culture. The man upstairs culture. You would think everybody loves God. It's just not true. We wonder why in the Bible the doctrine of reconciliation is repeated over and over again. It is because of this inescapable and deplorable condition that man finds himself in. What The great confessions of the Christian faith called man's sin and misery. Without the Prince of Peace, man is at war with God. A war he cannot avoid and a war certainly cannot win. Being therefore the enemy of God, humanity faces an unthinkable future. They're the objects of his wrath. They're the cause of his displeasure. They are the means through which God is going to satisfy his justice and his holy indignation against sin and sinners. Let's make it personal today. God does not send sin to hell. He sends sinners to hell. He sends sinners to hell. Because of sin, man is the enemy of God and has a destiny that includes a conflict with God, a collision with God, which will result in the judgment of God inevitably leading to the condemnation of God and ultimately undergoing the damnation of God in hell. Try that on Fox News. Therefore, there can be no peace when, re- when in reality, mankind is in a crisis. The crisis then turns to madness. 
when we recognize that mankind will not even acknowledge the crisis that they're in. They don't even want to retain God in their knowledge, Romans says. It's like a man sitting in his house while it's on fire. Goods and kindred are perishing all around him, and he simply turns the channel on the TV, reclines his recliner a little bit further back. Doesn't realize the impending flames are all around him. So is the person that fails to see the dire condition that their soul is at enmity with God. Oh, the insanity of it all. But it is the preacher of Ecclesiastes who points this out. He summed it up this way, Ecclesiastes 9.3. Madness is bound up in the heart of man all their life. The hearts of the sons of man are full of evil and insanity. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And afterwards, listen to this, they go to the dead. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, oh, what chaos He overcomes. What madness He overcomes. What insanity He overcomes as the Prince of Peace. I want to point out three things to you regarding the peace of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. I want to speak of the redemptive peace of Jesus, the experiential peace of Jesus, and the eschatological peace of Jesus. First is redemption, and for that, you will turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, because it really does comprehensively, across the entire redemptive landscape, sum up what the Prince of Peace is all about. This is what we can call Christ for us. Christ for us. Redemptive peace is that peace that initiates the experience of His peace in our lives. There is no peace apart from this aspect of His peace. There is no atonement. There is no propitiation. There is no imputation of our sins upon the Savior aside from this peace. This is the peace of the cross, in other words. This is the peace of His blood. This is the peace of our union with Christ. This is positional peace that refers to our estate, that refers to our spiritual status before God. It does not refer to the fluctuations of our experience of the peace of God in our daily lives. We are here speaking of that peace that defines whether or not we are in a relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus you were formerly far off, and you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So what's that saying? Well, what that is saying is that Jew and Gentile, the two groups that have been in utter opposition for centuries, 
So you don't understand this because you are not in the covenant community of Israel during the theocratic kingdom, where everything outside of that kingdom is profane, unclean, and unacceptable to God. That's what we mean in the Bible by Jew and Gentile. F.F. Bruce says, it is the deepest ethnic cleavage that has ever existed between two people groups in the history of planet Earth, Jew and Gentile. And it was overcome by the blood of Christ. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. That's the killer right there. The enmity, the hostility, the war which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It is the law that gave the force to that enmity, just like the law gives power to sin, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, that he might reconcile them both in one body to who? To God. Reconciliation to God through the cross by it i.e. the cross see how technical the apostle Paul is here right the antecedent to this referent here is the cross by it the cross having put to death the enmity what a beautiful play on words because at the cross Jesus was put to death But he was not the only one put to death there. He was not the only death there. The other thing that died was the enmity between man and man and man to God. See that? That's why in the year 2000, I was in Israel for the first time. And I was in the Arab quarter. And I happened to stumble. There's many, 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 many little shops there in the Arab quarter, right? And I happened to stumble upon one Arab shop. I was trying to buy one of those shofar horns. You know, I thought it was real Jewish and, you know, what. And he said he was a Christian. I thought, this is a remarkable thing. I happened to go into the one shop that has a Palestinian Christian inside. And what was even more remarkable, I've told this story before, is I asked him, hey, what is it like to fellowship with a Jewish Christian? Because, you know, Palestinians and Jews, I don't know if you know, they don't really like each other. It's like World War III, you know. And he goes, yeah, it's, it's complicated. He says it's complicated mainly because of politics and culture and stuff like that. And he says, there is this one pastor, this Jewish pastor, I really like him, Christian guy. And right as he's telling me that, that pastor just so happens to visit him that day. And he comes walking in. He's like, oh, this pastor I was talking to you about. And I was just, this is remarkable. I have here before me exhibit A, exhibit B here. What a perfect picture. And for that brief moment, even though I still had to haggle with him about the price about that horn, but anyway, just for that brief moment, the three of us, here's a Mexican guy. What's a Mexican guy doing in Israel? Anyway, Mexican guy, Palestinian guy, Jewish guy, and we're all having fellowship in the gospel. For that brief moment, I understood experientially what it means for Jesus to have removed the enmity where other than that, we would hate each other in that room. Isn't that remarkable? That's what Jesus did. How? Because he didn't just reconcile us in our brotherhood and our manhood. 
He reconciled us to the Father. And if this sounds like covenant language to you, it is. Why? Because the very covenant that makes this possible is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 34 as a covenant of peace. He says in Ezekiel 34 verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David, who is the Messiah, who is Jesus, will be prince among them. Wow. So there's the theme of prince. He says, and I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant, berit shalom, a covenant of peace. There's peace. So we have right here in this covenantal passage, prince of peace in the new covenant. And that's where it's all fine. He says, I will eliminate harmful beasts from their land so that they may live securely in the wilderness, and sleep in the woods. In other words, this will issue forth one day in a new creation. In a new creation. Ezekiel's not alone. Micah declares Jesus the one who will be our peace. Micah 5.5. 5. The prophet Zechariah says the counsel of peace will reside between the Father and the Son, Zechariah 6.13. Zechariah says in Zechariah 9.10, Jesus is the one who will speak peace to the nations. And in the New Testament, even the angels prophetically announce the peace of God when they say glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace among men. And it adds this, with those whom he is well pleased. Wish I had time to get into that. If peace were a verb, in other words, if we could put the word peace in verbal form, it would be the word to reconcile. Because that is what the doctrine of reconciliation is all about. It's taking us from enmity with God to amity with God. It's taking us being enemies of God, hostility with God, at war with God, to being God's friends, to being His people, to being His children. Romans chapter 5, if while we were enemies, we, recon we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, like you can say, having been peaced with God. We shall be saved by His life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. In other words, make peace with God. That's what you're telling people when you're telling them to repent and believe. Repent and believe. Become a Christian. Repent of your sins. Be born again. Be born again, which is a work of God that gives the person the ability to believe in God, thereby resulting in peace with God. It's so beautiful. 
Having been given peace, therefore, having peace established between us and God, we now inherit the ministry, the same ministry of peace, the ministry of reconciliation, where we put men and women at peace with God through the gospel. This peace, however, is not just a once-for-all phenomenon. As we think about different aspects of that peace, it is an ever-increasing quality of life. Matter of fact, if you asked a Jew what the word shalom is, means probably the first thing that they think about would be like a quality of life. Uh, It would be like a blessed life, you see? It would be a life of covenant flourishing with God, something like that, okay? And that's why I said it's more than just a one-time thing. It's an ever-increasing quality of life. It is as much about experience as it is about status, Our status has changed through the reconciliation of the cross. We have gone from war with God to peace with God, and now we also have a change in our experience. While while reconciliation emphasizes Christ for us, our experience of His peace, we could say emphasizes Christ with us, His peace abiding in us. And so that's what I want to look at next. Now, we should think about this very carefully. That's why I split this up into the three aspects of peace. There is redemptive peace. There is experiential peace. And what was the last one? Eschatological peace. Yeah, you come to our church, you've got to learn the word eschatological. Because it's the only word that just, you know, just does it, you know. Eschatol- future peace, we could say, to make it simple. Future peace. But we need to qualify this because experiential peace is not to be mistaken with eschatological peace, and it's not to be mistaken with redemptive peace either. In your day-to-day life, as you strive for peace with God, you are not striving for redemptive peace. You are not striving to be reconciled with God. You've been reconciled with God. You are also not striving for eschatological peace. That's something different. Why? Because eschatological peace is full peace. Uh, uh, It is fail-proof peace. And it is final peace. No. In this world, God's peace is experienced in a tempest. Can I get an amen? In the midst of many adversaries, in the context of holy warfare. In other words, brothers and sisters, irony of irony, but God's peace for us now is a fought for peace. We have to fight to seize upon the peace of God. Why do we fight? What do we fight? Number one, we fight indwelling sin above all that threatens to upset the peace of God of God in us. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the lusts that wage war, opposite of peace, war in our souls. We fight her- heresy, which also seeks to complicate and to confuse our peace. What did Paul tell the Galatians? Who has bewitched you? What does Paul tell the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians eleven three. I fear for you that like the serpent deceived Eve, someone is going to deceive you from the gospel, the simplicity of devotion to the gospel. We fight also the spirit of this age. Oh, oh, 
We fight the spirit of this age so draining. I love basketball. Right? Like some people know me. Trish is like, yep. I love basketball. I bleed purple and gold. I am a Laker fan. But I tell you what, some I was watching a Laker game. The whole team, the entire stadium is decked out in pride for Pride Month. The coach has a pride jacket on. The players had pride shoes on. And everyone in the stadium had some sort of pride thing on them. I'm thinking, what on earth has happened? I mean, this is not Showtime Magic Johnson. I mean, this is, some of you are too young to even know what that means. Anyway, this is a bold new world. The only problem is, is the boldness is blasphemous. And I hate what's going on right now with all of that, but it just reminds us that we have to combat the spirit of this age that's so draining, seeks to give us something else in its place. Oh, it seems so peaceful. Everybody's celebrating. They feel good. It's festive. What's wrong with that? Don't be such a joy killer. Brothers and sisters, it is a pseudo-peace. It is a man-centered peace, a circumstantial peace. It is superficial, moralistic, and it is not lasting peace. It's a mirage. Like Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14, the superficial, love Jeremiah, love the prophets. These guys were brutally honest. They'd make the Puritans blush. Peace, peace. When there is no peace. You see, it's our job, like Jeremiah, to tell the culture there is no peace. And celebrating that. We also fight the enemy of our souls, the devil, who seeks to rob us of our peace by stealing our confidence, seducing us away from faith, and casting us into doubt in our minds and our hearts and our souls. What does the devil do? He'll tell us redemptive peace did not happen. Eschatological peace will not happen. Therefore, experiential peace cannot happen. The devil is a brilliant heretic. For the Christian life, the experience of peace means war. The experience of peace is wartime for us. See? Therefore, shouldn't surprise us to find many, many imperatives in the Bible exhorting us unconditionally to pursue peace with all rigor and zeal. Let me give you one commandment. Are you ready? Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. That's a command. That's something that you need to obey. That's not a suggestion. That's a different mood in the Bible. This is imperative territory. This is a commandment, not a suggestion. This is an obligation for the Christian now that we must be in the pursuit of peace. Philippians chapter 4. You know this verse. It's in every Bible promise book in the world. 4.6, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, and by prayer, 
supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, turn, to, turn with me in the Gospel of John to John chapter 14 since we are speaking of the Prince of Peace. Where in fact, does he promise this peace? Because more than just a tranquil state of mind, more than just a therapeutic phenomenon, the peace of Christ is also what we can call spiritually objective peace, a spiritual objective reality. His peace resides in us. At times, we may not be able to detect that in the storms and trials of our lives. We may waver in faith, and we may think that the peace of God wavers, but in fact, the peace of God doesn't waver at all. It's like an anchor at the bottom of the ocean. The only thing that wavers is the boat of our lives. The boat of our lives. But the anchor is there. The peace of God is immovable reality. And so Jesus says of this, John 14, beginning verse 27, He says, Peace I leave with you. Praise God. My peace I give to you. That is worthy of a sermon all in its own. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. In other words, what He's saying is, you can search high and low. You can go anywhere you want. Try any therapeutic method you can think of. And whatever peace you get from any medicine, any doctor, any therapeutic model fails to be the kind of peace that I give to you. His peace is different. His peace is transcendent. His peace is unique. Do not let your heart be troubled. Your heart can be troubled with all those other kinds of peace. Nor let it be fearful. Look over to John chapter 16, verse 33. We know this verse. These things I have spoken to you. What things? Well, they're going to arrest you one day. Cast you into prisons. They're going to persecute you. You're going to be hated everywhere for my name's sake. The whole world will hate you for my name's sake. <laughs> Spoiler alert. You will be hated for Jesus, but I tell you these things ahead of time, in other words, so that in me you may have peace. Peace. Pastor Lin was telling me about missionaries, brave evangelists that are going into Wuhan, a Chinese town none of us would ever have known anything about prior to a few months ago. Now we all know about it. They're going into the Wuhan province, these evangelist missionaries. They're going in there embracing these people, hugging them and loving them in the name of Jesus because these people are being treated like lepers, like pariahs. 
And these evangelists are going and laying down their lives and loving these people in the name of Jesus. What kind of peace does it take <laughs> to surpass the reality that by me going into that town and putting my arms around that suffering patient, I am going to die? Most certainly. It, it takes an otherworldly peace. It takes a heavenly, supernatural peace to do that. And that's why he says, in the world you will have tribulation, coronaviruses and everything else. But be of good courage. I have overcome the world. Therefore, brothers and sisters, to reiterate the abiding presence of his peace among us in this context he is commissioning them. This is right in the context of his resurrection when he imparts the peace of Christ, the peace of God to them, to his disciples as he appears to them. In John, that's in John chapter 20, verse 19. He appears to them, and what's the word that he speaks to them? Peace. He breathes on them his spirit, and what does he say to them? Peace. And then in the same chapter... He sends them on their global mission, which he already told them, I send you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. You know what happens to a sheep in the midst of wolves, don't you? And in the context of commissioning them to do this, he says one more time, peace be with you. The resurrection, brothers and sisters. You know what else is found in John chapter 20? It was there that one disciple was unwilling to believe in his peace. Because he was unwilling to believe in his resurrected presence. When Jesus allowed Thomas to see his hands and to reach into his side and to feel his flesh Certainly then Thomas felt the peace of Christ. It became real to him, experiential. The resurrection, in other words, makes it so that the peace of Jesus, though it may waver in our hearts, in our minds, it really doesn't waver at all. As sure as Jesus bears the scars from the nails in his hands for all eternity, his personal peace will endure forever. Speaking of forever, that brings us to our third and final point, eschatological peace. Look back with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9 where we began. Look back there. He will be called Prince of Peace. And what's the context? There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. No end to his peace. You see that? His peace will be an ever-increasing, ever-enlarging reality that eventually gives way to the eschaton where the peace of God will cover the world as the waters cover the sea. It will be fully all-immersive peace. I can't wait for that day, man. I can't wait. 
That reminds us that there is one final future installment of the peace of Jesus Christ, his future eschatological peace, so that just as Jesus is for us in his redemptive peace and Jesus is with us in his experiential peace, here now Jesus is before us as our eschatological peace. Isaiah and the prophets are not alone in their messianic eschatology. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Because the Psalms are littered with the same messianic expectation of peace in association with the eschaton and the Prince of Peace who alone can bring in that future peace. Solomon here in Psalm 72 envisions as much as Isaiah when he writes of the heir of the king, the Messiah. And this is what he says. Psalm 72, beginning in verse 1. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. Transitioned right there. The king's son. Well, there's only one ultimate son, heir of the king, that fits this bill. May he judge your people with righteousness and you're inflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people. Remarkable why? Because the theme of a mountain in the Bible can either speak of God's judgment and his indignation, like for example when Sinai thunders from the mountain, the law of God, and the people stand in terror at the mountain of God saying, no more words. Here, the psalmist is envisioning a time in which the mountains will bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass like showers that water the earth. In His days may the righteous flourish an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. That's the way the prophets speak in prophetic idiom of a time in which creation itself will undergo some sort of revolution. It's another way of talking about the new heavens, the new earth in language that we can all understand. Like much of the material in Isaiah, the theme of peace is climactic. Only at the eschatological level, brothers and sisters, when God brings into view a new heaven and a new earth, at that time then true, lasting, eternal, permanent peace will prevail. It will no longer be partial, limited, obscured by the fluctuations of our experience then it will be lasting, firm, steady, ever-increasing peace. Isaiah 66, verse 10 speaks of this. Many places in Isaiah. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 66, verse 10. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. In other words, the people of God in a time of turmoil. 
that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees, as one whom his mother comforts. There's the metaphor. So I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. What's the point? The point is that the prophet is reaching deep to try to express to us what the perfect shalom state of life looks like. And truth be told, if you're a parent, you understand that when your heart, at those moments, whatever, birthday party, Christmas, family gathering, you are pouring your delight over your child. You're rejoicing, man, selfies, everything, portrait mode. Life is as good as anything you've ever experienced. Child's healthy, growing, you're happy, things are good, right? And you just, a, a little glimpse, a glimmer of shalom. And what Isaiah is saying one day, a day will come when that's going to be the experience of the people of God. We will be on his lap. He'll delight over. He will pour his love and joy, his delight. He will be so proud of us like a parent. I remember one time with Eden, almost cried. I told her something. I don't forgot what she did. She must have said something brilliant, as Eden does all the time. And I said, Eden, I'm so proud of you. And now she's listening, so I don't know. I don't want to puff her up with pride, but I said, Eden, Papa's so proud of you, and I almost, almost cried. She runs down the hallway to Mom, and I can just hear, Mom, Mama, Papa said he's so proud of me. Yeah, that's the stuff that melts your heart, like, as a parent. And I said, that's it. That, that's just a little taste, a little metaphor from the lesser to the greater of what it will be when we experience this type of eschatological shalom. God is trying to paint a picture. We will be in the bosom of his heart. In other words, the church will be the darling daughter of our great God and King. There's nothing more beautiful and peaceful than that. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says of this future eschatological peace, three things. Three more points. Are you ready? No, no, not another hour, but just three things. He is our hope now. All biblical eschatology is already not yet. Even now, the eschaton is to what? 1 John chapter 3, purify us now because we hope in that. He's also a Savior to come. Oh, don't, whatever your eschatological whatever, if you lose this component, something is wrong. I don't care if it's my eschatology, your eschatology, I'm here pre, post, all, omni, no, <laughs> intra eschatology, I don't know, whatever. If you have lost the component of waiting for him, something's wrong. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. The church reports about us. 
we had a kind reception with you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Are you waiting for His Son from heaven? The word wait there can easily translate an eager anticipation. Hey, in the midst of our eschatology, church, have we lost the component of an urgency, of an eager awaiting? Man, the pre-trib, pre-millennial dispensation, they got a lot to teach us about this. You know, as much as they're characterized and cartoonish, you know, on the roof waiting for the rapture, okay, whatever, but they have a component that we dare not lose, an urgent anticipation of His coming. Well, He will break through the clouds, roll up the world like a scroll. Is that there? Philippians chapter 3, same thing. You wait. Where is it at? Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. The Corinthians went too far. They had such a realized eschatology, they were like, why work? Why get married? Matter of fact, let's just end our marriages and just go serve the Lord. Hey, don't punk their zeal. They were zealous, but they were in error. And Paul had to correct them. Say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Settle down, cage stage, whatever. Settle down. You still need to work. You still need to get married. You still need to live your life, raise a family, and do all of that. Absolutely. But what does, how does the eschaton, how does it reflect in our lives? I leave that for you to determine because I've gone too long and, and that's something that we can talk about over dinner. Finally, He is our treasure forevermore. That's what it means to have Jesus as your eschatological peace. He is our ultimate treasure forever. We will rejoice in Him forever. As Revelation chapter 22 verse 5 says, we will dwell in His light such that He will illuminate us. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as you reflect on the peace of God that is in Christ Jesus, you will remember not to confuse redemptive peace, experiential peace, and eschatological peace. If you're expecting a perfect Christian life, you're thinking eschatological, full, permanent, unwavering, unfailing. If you're thinking, I need to earn the peace of God, you're thinking redemptive. That's been earned. That's done. That's accomplished for you, right? And if you're thinking about, oh, the peace of God is so hard to get, this and that, you're losing sight of eschatological peace, that the peace of Christ is coming in all of its fullness, so that the Prince of Peace, a little bit more complicated than maybe just the title, right? Father, I just feel like we're so prone to lose sight of this peace that we need to be reminded everything is found in the face of Jesus. 
The Prince of Peace means there is no peace apart from Him. And that whatever we seek in terms of having a blessed life, a sound mind, and a soul that is in communion with God, it will never happen apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray, would You reveal more of Your Son to us so that we can have more of His peace, the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.